Good morning. Welcome to church. My name's Phil. If we haven't had a chance to meet, how are you? Good. Lovely to meet you all if we haven't met. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church and, uh, and I'm loving the series that we're tracking with at the moment, 40 Days in the Word. Who's been enjoying that reading plan over the last few weeks? Come on, it's been awesome. I've been uh, loving going back to some passages of Scripture that I haven't read in some time and hearing God's voice speak anew. You know, as a church, we have this belief there that is fundamental to everything that we do, that our God is alive, that our God is living and active. And we believe that, that our God has the desire to speak into our lives And we believe that one of the key ways that God does that is through His miraculous, Spirit-inspired Word. Has anyone got a Bible here this morning? If you've got a Bible, why don't you pick it up for me? Give it a bit of a shake. This is God's Word into your life. And I guess throughout this series, we want to keep saying, God, we want you to speak to us through the incredible gift of your word, through the power of your word. And, uh, and today we're, we're going to continue to lean into that uh, with a quite specific uh, a goal, I guess, to think about how do we study God's word? How do we study a passage of scripture, I guess, specific to your reading plans? We, we've got these great chapters, these great verses, these great passages. How do we actually wrestle with them and get to the core of what God could be speaking into our lives. So we're going to be spending some time with that uh, this, mor- this morning, excuse me, which I think is going to be uh, a lot of fun. And I'd encourage you, if you're a note-taking person, this message is going to be a cracker for you. If you're, if you're not a note-taking person, you're going to be like, oh dear Lord, Phil, make him stop. No, no, but I'd encourage you, maybe you don't take notes normally. Maybe today could be the time that you become a note-taker. And, uh, you know, we don't want to do that in a religious spirit, but uh, I think you might pick up some good things today. But before we do that, we've got a a memory verse. Each week we've got a brand new memory verse. Who's been loving the memory verses? Uh, I'm going to put someone on the spot. John, did you learn your memory verse this week? I only say John because he's pointing at some others. No, I'm not going to put John on the spot. But can can we throw the, the memory verse up there? So here we go, week three memory verse. So if you're, if you're new or visiting this morning, we've been doing this thing where, where we want to get these key scriptures and really remember them, take them into our hearts to continue to encourage us as we're reading God's Word. So here we go, James 1.22. So we've been doing this whole deal where we do like a church countdown, three, two, one. And then on the one, we all start together very eloquently and with a rhythmic voice kind of read this together. So we're going to try that, uh, try that again. I think we need it. We do need that count, don't we, to get it all right. Jo- John, would you give us a count? Could you just stand up and give us a... Jo- John's our youth pastor. He does an incredible job. Can we give John a round of applause? Just, just stand up where you are. Sorry, this isn't really functional. I'm just embarrassing you. So John's, John's going to give us a big three. And then on one, we're, we're going to do it. So John, help me out with this. All right, you got, can, actually, can people see past John? He's quite tall and handsome. Uh, but anyway, we're going to read this memory verse together. And on the count of three, so John, you ready? We're going to count us in. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Well done. Come on, give yourself a round of applause. That was brilliant. Brilliant. 
Now, and, and what a great picture as well. And we have some fun around, you know, having fun together on the morning. But, but what a great verse to hold on to into your heart as you're approaching your time reading God's Word. That we don't just want to read blindly or we don't just want to read without any desire to be transformed. But we want to read recognizing that this Word that we are reading is God's spoken Word to bring transformation into my life. So that when I read it, I don't just want to read it, but I actually want to apply what it says. Can someone say amen to that? So what a great verse to carry with you into your readings this week. Uh, but as I promised today, we're, we're going to kind of focus and take a, a little bit of a different track to, to sometimes how we would on a Sunday. And, and I, I want to give you some tools to think about how we study a passage of Scripture. So note takers, you can get your pens out, get your fingers firing if you've got an e-device of some kind. Do we still call them that? Just an iPad, that's fine. Uh, but so as, a, as an opening term, I want to introduce you to as we think about what it means to, to search for meaning in God's Word. Uh, I want to give you a term to play with, and it's simply this, exegesis. Exegesis. So we're going to have this up here. And it's kind of a, a fancy kind of theologian, scholarly type word. But, but really, all it means is this, the process of interpreting Scripture. And really, the search for meaning, that when we approach God's Word with the belief and in faith, saying, God, you have an intended meaning in this text for my life to bring transformation, hope and joy to who I am as a believer. But to get there, we need to do a little bit of work. And the process of getting to that meaning, we, we call exegesis. Now, here's the thing. And the first time I heard this, I was really challenged by it. Uh, and so I want to say it in love this morning. But, but whenever we read Scripture, we go through this process of interpretation. But here's the truth. We can either do it well or we can do it badly. So what I'm saying is that there's been times in my life where I've spent time in God's Word and I've landed on the wrong meaning. There's been times in my life when I've interpreted it poorly. Hopefully I won't do that today. But there's been times in my life where I've spent time with God and I've read Scripture and I've landed on the wrong meaning. And I'd suggest that, that probably most of us here that have read the Bible before have, have probably at some point or another done that as well. So what I want to do this morning is speak around some tools and some things that can help us more often than not land on the correct meaning through Scripture. Does anyone find, it, find that a little bit confronting to think there are times when I've read it wrong, that I've interpreted meaning the wrong way? And, and I'd encourage you to wrestle with that because it was fairly recently in my life that I, that I even ever realized that I could sometimes get it wrong. And sure, we're all good at saying like, yeah, everyone else, they get it wrong. Oh, that's a terrible interpretation. But me, no, I never do it. When I spend time with God's anointed Word, the Holy Spirit always compels me to perfectly discern meaning. And without that kind of, you know, enthusiasm speaking in front of hundreds of people, that's what we do in the quietness of our bedrooms when we're reading. I'm always right when I interpret Scripture. But we've got to challenge our own thinking and say, hey, hang on, have I got this right? Is that good? Is that okay? Haven't offended anyone? Well, we'll have a hug later if necessary. Uh, but anyway, so, so here are some tools when we think about how this search for meaning and interpreting Scripture. Here are some great tools that, that I think we need as we get that, that game started. And the first is this, a good translation. A good translation. So, so most of us were, would kind of know, and if you don't, that the Bible was written in languages others to our own. And, and it's by the work of translators that we're then able to read the, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek in our English language. So, so one thought is that before we even read our Bibles... The process of interpretation has already begun. 
because someone else has translated that language into our English, and then we sit down to read it. So it's worth taking a little bit of time to think about some of our translations. Now, here's a, here's a, as a starting point, I would say if you're wanting to, to really get into a passage of Scripture, read it in at least three different translations. So I'm not really going to say that any translation is super bad or anyone's super good, but to say that they all bring slightly different emphases to the text. And when we read a range, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's what's going on here. Now I understand and recognize what's really happening. Oh, that word always confused me. But now in this translation, it's worded and put in a slightly different way and all of a sudden it makes sense. So I'd encourage you that if you're wanting to really spend some time, go with three different translations. Now, and to inform that a little bit more, I want to show you a quick picture and we'll throw this on the screen. And so translators, they'll kind of fall into three categories, basically. And this is a massive oversimplification if anyone's done formal training. But <laughs> so here's, here's the, the kind of deal that you have translations that, that will take a formal approach to translating from the original text into English. And basically what this means is they're always looking for the most literal English word to replace the original word. And what can sometimes happen is you can get quite blocky language because the, the interpreters are so committed to finding the most literal word but may not always convey the, the closest meaning. So examples of formal translations would be the King James Version, New King James. And, and I've got this one little phrase here as an example that, that coming most literally would be uh, from obviously the original language describing coals of fire would be to say coals of fire. Which, which sounds kind of awesome and a little bit epic and kind of cool, but, but it's not really how we talk, is it? It's not really how any one of us would describe that. And then say a functional translation, we'd be more thinking, okay, what is the, the functional equivalent? What is an English word that best captures the meaning from the original text? And then the, the NIV would be a great example of this, would then to describe it as burning coals. And that's kind of getting closer to the actual language we'd use. And then free translations are one that kind of uh, throw the, the original text out the window. No, they don't do that. <laughs> Just a joke. Free, free translations are much more about what, what is the, the meaning of this sentence? What's the meaning of this verse? What's the intended meaning of the, the Hebrew sentences or words that come together to, to kind of form this? And an example of that would be a, an NLT. And an extreme example of that would be the message, which uh, a good friend of mine, Brad, would uh, sometimes call the Disney Pixar version of the Bible. Sorry, I'm, I'm misquoting Brad. That's what I call it. The, the message great as well. Um, but a great idea if whenever you're reading Scripture to read from, from one of these three, three different types. Anyway, the next thing we're going to need is a Bible dictionary. You know, you've, you know you've got a super kind of smick, engaging message when your second point is a Bible dictionary. You know, you just preach that with passion. Have you got your Bible dictionary? Do you have it in your life? It's kind of not one of those things, but, but a really helpful tool that, that even in our English languages, words are translated, that, that sometimes you come across these words and you're like, I have literally no idea what that means. And, and the habit when you're reading through, give me a hand if anyone else does this, you're reading through a passage, all of a sudden you get to a word and you're like, I have no idea what that is. Okay, skip that. doesn't matter. I keep reading. <laughs> anyone else done that? Come on, put your hands up. Put your hands up. No, and uh, I, I kind of get this thing that, that we just skip over words that are tricky and think, oh, that's okay, that probably doesn't matter, it's probably not that important. And then all of a sudden, uh-oh, I've interpreted Scripture badly again. 
But here's the thing, a Bible commentary, a Bible dictionary is saying that when we come across those words, we look it up, whether you're old school in your book or you're, you know, on your iPad or whatever it might be, and say, okay, what did that word really mean? What did it mean to, to them in their context? What, what is the really the meaning of what this is? And then we think, okay, all of a sudden, this verse, this passage, this scripture, I understand it in a new way because I haven't ignored an important word in the text. A Bible dictionary, a good tool to have. And the, the final kind of little practical tool is we're approaching Scripture with the heart to hear God's voice and God speaking is a commentary. A commentary. Oh, you've got some fans of commentaries on the front row. Come on. Well, let me give you a caution on commentaries. Sorry to isolate the, the crowd there. Now, I've got, I've got a big set of commentaries. I love commentaries. But, but here's, a, here's a caution on commentaries. What you're actually doing when you read a commentary is you are reading somebody else's interpretation of a passage of Scripture. So really what you're doing is rather than working out the answer yourself, you're having someone else give it to you. It's kind of like cheating in a math test. You're like, you know, seven times seven, you better look next door. And then you go, there's the answer, and I can put that down, and now I understand it. But you haven't understood it. You haven't learnt it. You haven't learnt the process of engaging and wrestling with the Spirit of God as you read His Word to say, God, how do I find the meaning that you have for me in this text? We say, you know what? As a last... Last solution, we go to a commentary. If, you like, if you've read through it, you've read a few different translations, you've had conversations with your friends, and you're still like, God, I have no idea what you're saying in this passage of Scripture, then the commentary is awesome. The commentary is fantastic. But use it as a last resort, not the starting point, because we want to teach ourselves, inspired by the presence of God in our life, to wrestle with Scripture, to get at what God is speaking to us. Is that good? It's good. So we, we want to do that. But actually, here's, here's a quick note on commentaries. Now, actually, I'll leave it. We'll go. We'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. Cool. So moving on. There's some of the tools. We got. So what are the three tools? Number one, good translation. Number two, come on, you've been in here twice. Sorry, just making fun of the front row. And number three. A Bible commentary. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, whoever that was. Bible, did you say Strong's commentary? Whatever commentary you like is fine. And a Bible commentary. But now as we, we're going to get a little bit more specific and dig a little bit deeper. And here are some of the questions we then need to ask when, when we think about, okay, these are the tools that I have in my utility belt. What are some of the questions that I need to ask when I approach Scripture? And the first of these I'm going to frame under the questions of context. Can everyone say context? That was, that was beautiful. Nice rhythmic pronunciation. Uh, so context. And the first question of context we're going to look at is historical and cultural. Recognizing that the original authors had no idea who I was, had no idea who you were, had no idea what Western Australian life would be in the 21st century. They're re- writing into and out of a very specific time in history and a very different culture. And most simply, we just need to be aware of that, that whenever we read God's Word, we're reading out of a situation that is radically different to our own. Now, here's what you can do with your commentary to really get at this, is, is commentaries will have what they call book introductions, which will just give you this foundation of the what life was like in that time, in that culture, what life was like for the characters in the text, what, what life was like, how it was different from our experience of life. So I'd say this is an awesome way to use commentaries. As you're beginning to, to read a new book or if you're, you're wanting to get a better picture of, of even in your readings in 40 Days of the Word, go to, a, go to a commentary book introduction and you'll be like, wow, this is awesome. I understand the context that this is 
uh, coming out of. Another great one, if you've got a, a study Bible, they'll give you great kind of snapshot pictures of, of that context. But it's only to be important to, to think about when we approach Scripture. The next one is the literary context. Do we have any English teachers here today? No, no English teachers. Oh, we've got some fingers pointing. Oh, there's one at the back. I can't see your face, and I'm sure that's deliberate. But uh, uh, so the the literary context, so that we have to think about this whenever we're reading any kind of text. And here are some of the, the, I guess, the lenses that we need to think about. And the first and most important one is that everything we read in Scripture features as part of a much broader redemptive story, which is at the heart of the Bible. That the Bible is all about the reconciliation of relationship between Creator and Creator. Creation. So everything we read in the Bible fits in a broad stroke into that literary context. So important to remember. And then some other cool, cool questions to think about is the surrounding chapters. If you're reading just a verse or just a passage, what's happening before this? What's happening after this? What's happening in the, the book as a whole? What's the intended purpose of this entire book? How does this one verse fit into that context as well? And when you start to do this, you begin to discern Scripture in a different way. And another final kind of phrase I put there is, is learning to read Scripture in units of thought. That, that the authors throughout Scripture will kind of always talk around certain themes in certain chunks. And most of our, our translations are quite good at doing that for us already. It's where we get the kind of, you know, titles and your NIV and all that kind of stuff. They're, they're, they're really what the translators are trying to do are trying to prepare the units of thought within various chapters excuse me, within books. Uh, so we need to learn to think, you know, what is this a new unit of thought that the writer's going into or is he, you know, kind of talking around a, an idea that he's already introduced? Anyway, all of that being said, what we're going to do now is have some fun. Uh, we have been having fun up to this point, haven't we? Come on, don't tell me if we haven't. It's going to hurt my feelings. No, I'll be fine. I've got thick skin. Uh, but, but what we're going to do is we're, we're going to read together one of our readings over the last week. We're going to go to 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. So this was, uh, anyone do this reading earlier in the week? And, uh, and if, you're, if you're not good with kind of book titles and numbers, as I'm not, it's the, the story where Samuel goes to anoint David as the new king of Israel. This wonderfully uh, important moment in Israel's history as King David uh, is anointed for that task. But uh, we're going to read together. And as we read, I want to give you some questions to talk about, to think about. And so as we, we think about this in 1 Samuel, this is a passage of narrative. The book is written as a historical account for, uh, for Israel. And being a narrative, here are some great questions to ask yourself whenever you're reading narrative in Scripture. And, and as I'm reading, I want you to think about it, okay? So if, you got, if you're a note-taking person, you can do that as well. So number one, who are the characters involved? Who are the characters involved in this story? Then what happens to those characters? What do they do? How do they relate to each other? What actually takes place? And then what does it mean? And there's two layers to this, the then and there. What's the, what does it mean in its original context, the original intention of the author, the original readers? And then we're going to translate that into the here and now. What could be the meaning for my life? So are we ready to read some scripture? And I'll be speaking of translations, uh, reading from the NIV today. So 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 3. I think I'm going to read it from the, the screen today. So uh, here we go. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? 
If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Uh Uh-oh. And the Lord said, take a heifer, a cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now consecrate yourselves, good word for your Bible dictionary, and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his heart, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Can someone say, hmm, it's good. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's, he's out. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. So there's our passage. There's a passage. We're asking some of those questions as we were reading along. So, so as a starting point, okay, who are the characters involved in this story? Let, let's take a moment to think about it. We've got Samuel, who's kind of the, the main character. We've got Saul, the king there that's kind of messed up and God needs to choose a new king. We've got God, who's speaking directly to Samuel. We've got Jesse, the father of all these sons. And, and then we've got, obviously, David as the younger son. I'd say another centrally important character. Is Eliab, the oldest son that's kind of rejected. He was the one that we all thought was the, you know, the big shot that was going to get the job. But no, God had a different plan. So here's all the characters involved. Now, whenever we're looking at a narrative, a great place to begin the process of interpretation is saying, identifying who are the characters? What are they doing? So what kind of happens? So God, one of the characters, comes to Samuel and says, you need to anoint a new king. Now, Samuel's a little bit nervous about doing this because there is a king, even though God's rejected him he's still got the power basically to kill him for this act of treason declaring that you are no longer the king here's the new king so then Samuel and God come up with this plan to say okay here's what we're going to do we're going to do a ruse and you're going to pretend to go and sacrifice but really what you're doing you're going to go and you're going to anoint for me a new king so Samuel in obedience with courage knowing that a likely factor outside of God's grace is that he would be killed for this act of treason he goes anyway and he has the, bro- the sons of Jesse come before him. The first one shows up is Eliab. He's tall. He's the eldest. He, he looks impressive in every way. And Samuel's like, okay, God, I know why you sent me here. This dude is the real deal. He's like six foot six. He's strong as anything. And, and he's going to be the king of Israel. And then we get to that mm, moment. And God says, no, no, no. 
He's not the one. Then all the other seven sons come past him. And then Samuel, believing that God sent him there with purpose, said, this isn't making sense. There's got to be someone else. And sure enough, Jesse says, well, there's the young guy there that I didn't even bother to invite to such an occasion who's out looking after the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him along. And sure enough, the youngest son, the one that no one else should even thought should be there, is the one that God chooses and anoints to be king. So there we go. There's our characters. There's what kind of happens between the characters. There's the exchange. So now from this point, we've got to say, okay, what does it mean? Someone say, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I don't know. Hopefully you guys can tell me. Now, so, so first of all, let's think about what it means to its original context, to the then and there, to its original hearers. So when we think about, about Samuel as a whole, it's, bit, it's, bitten. <laughs> it's written as a, as a book of history for, for Israel to celebrate everything that God has done in their national redemptive history. And here's this moment in that where, where the author's highlighting the anointing of King David, an incredibly influential character within their history. And, and then he's described this situation. He's outlining Samuel. Do, do you think he portrays Samuel in a positive way in this text? Who, who would say positive? That Samuel, he's, he's kind of he's awesome in this text, right? He's, he's obedient to God. He's courageous. He, he goes and, and does exactly what God says, no matter what the challenges were, he was faithful to God. He could have given up. Oh, here's all the sons. Obviously, God got it wrong. I'll go back. But he says, no, there's got to be another solution. God has said, this is where I come to find the king. So this is where I'm going to find the king. And we say, okay, so he's kind of portraying Samuel's role in this as a positive way. He's kind, of, he's kind of communicating his obedience to God, resulting in the anointing of the future king of Israel. So then when we read this, we can kind of get a picture of what's happening in Israel at this time, what's happening in the change in the monarchy and all these kind of things. Now, this is where, where exegesis, where interpreting Scripture, where searching for meaning for ourselves becomes the most challenging. Because now we have to take that account of that time in history and ask ourselves, what is the timeless principle that operates outside of a specific culture, operates outside and above a certain moment in history, and is a principle for me to take hold of that God wants to speak meaning into my life. I love this phrase, the timeless principle. And a quick note on that, it's, it's sometimes tempting with, with Old Testament narrative in particular to always look for the moral of the story. You know how with our kind of stories today that we tell our kids and all that kind of... Now, what's the moral of the story? Now, we have to be careful when we read Old Testament passages like this because that's not how the Hebrew writers wrote their stories. It wasn't always, now here's the story, now here's the moral of the story. That's not how they wrote. It was written as a historical account of what actually happened. And sometimes what actually happened happened was horrible, wasn't it? It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. So the process of getting at these timeless principles is working out what is prescriptive in this text and what is descriptive for the type of life that I should live as a person following Christ. I want to finish with this uh, final exercise. Uh, I'm going to generate some principles from the text and, uh, and, and I want us to decide whether they are good interpretations or bad interpretations. So there's going to be some good ones, there's going to be some bad ones, and you might come up with some others that we can discuss after as well. So thinking about this story, thinking about the things that happened, one interpretation that I could take away as a timeless principle out of this text could be that as a person of faith, I should always disobey human authority. 
that, that's exactly what happens in the text, right? That there's the, the human authorities there, and Samuel blatantly disobeys his king to the point of treason, which would result in his death. So one way of interpreting it would be to say that yeah, that is what we should do. Who thinks that's good interpretation? Who thinks it's bad interpretation? Now, let me explain why that would be bad interpretation. To say that we should always disobey human authority based on this one isolated story and text is dangerous for a couple of reasons. And here are some of the filters that we need to put it through. Number one, it can't mean what it never meant. It can't mean what it never meant. Do you think that the writer of 1 Samuel was explicitly trying to communicate to his original audience that as a people we should always disobey human authority? Does that line up with the rest of the, the historical accounts of Israel? No, never. Does it line up with even the concept of having a king? No. So for David to even be anointed king, he's saying that all of Israel should automatically disobey him because he's the king. No, that's not the picture we see. Here is what we could say based on what we see there, is that whenever it comes down to a choice between obeying man or something else or obeying what you believe God is calling you to, then that's when you need to make that decision. It doesn't mean that we automatically always disobey human authority, but it does mean we've got a question to ask ourselves if we believe that we're called to follow something that puts us in opposition to God. All right, let's look at another one. Samuel shows courageous obedience to God's will. Courageous obedience to God. Now, who thinks that could be good interpretation, a timeless principle for me to take out of that and say, yeah, as a person of faith, this is something that I need to be challenged by and transformed into. Uh, And I saw some hands go up there. And and kind of in your gut straight away, that feels like a good interpretation of of Scripture. We had people, "Mm," when we got to that part in the text when God says, God doesn't look at the appearance, He looks at the heart. Now, let's put it through some of those same filters. It can't mean what it never meant. Do you think it's likely that that is the opposite of what the original author intended? Probably not. It's fair to say that that the author was celebrating the fact that Samuel was obedient to God in that text. Then here's another important filter to start putting these ideas through. And it's this. Does it align with the rest of Scripture holistically? And going back to that idea, that biggest picture of Scripture, the redemptive story between us and God, how does it fit into that, that God chooses heart over appearance? Let's go to the the best example we have, the birth of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What did that look like? Was it something that that man would naturally look at and say, whoa, this is a king of power, of wealth, of influence, born into an important family? No, he was a little baby born in a stable. No one knew who he was, had nothing to his name. But God chooses the heart, not the things that seem important to the world. So we can look at that and we say, you know what? I think that's what God has for my life. It doesn't matter who, the, who I am, doesn't matter how talented I am, how tall I am, how important I am, that God can choose me to do incredible things by His Spirit in my life. I think that's something we can take hold of. How about this? One, one final one. God chooses the young over the old. Mm. Doesn't seem right, does it? It's something you got that's just like, 
Nah, Phil, I'm pretty sure that's bad interpretation. I'm pretty sure that's kind of the opposite of what you just said about Scripture and the choosing of Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And and here's why I'd say you're right in that thinking. So if we look at this passage literally and look at it as if it is the only part of the Bible that we have, surely we might say, we might say, yeah, God does choose the, the youngest over the oldest because he did right here in this moment. And this is the only part of the Bible that we have. However, it's a minute percentage of the Bible that we have. And really what's happening is God is saying again and again and again throughout His Word that He will take the things that are broken, that are less, and bless them to advance His kingdom. That we see it again and again in Scripture. Sure, you could argue that in other times in the Old Testament, God does take the youngest and elevates it. But what's the bigger principle is that God takes the things that everyone else gives up on and says, I will redeem it with purpose. That's true for your life. That's a principle coming from this text that's living and active for your life today. So when I think about this passage, there'd be the two big things that I'd land on. One is that people of faith, we show courageous obedience to God's will. That's what Samuel does as the main character. He says, no matter what, I will do what God says. And number two, the promise that says, it doesn't matter how messed up I am. God can redeem me for purpose by His grace in my life. Can someone else say amen to that? And then all the other funny things we could tag onto that. We've got to filter through and say, does it align with the rest of Scripture? Am I reading this as, this as if this is the only part of the Bible that exists? If we're doing those kind of things, we may at times do bad exegesis. <laughs> so here's what I want to do in finishing today. I just wanted to, to, I guess, give you some tools, give you some things to think about as you continue in your readings. But, but I really see this kind of weekend as like a bamming it up a notch moment as we're engaging with Scripture. So we're a couple of weeks in, we've got a few weeks left to go. And, and I actually want to pray for you today that you would have moments of transformation when you sit quietly in, in your house, in your office, wherever you are, where you take up God's Word, that, that it would start to come alive to you in a new way, that you'd start to search and find meaning with new power, with new authority that comes from the Holy Spirit of God in you. Can I pray for you in that as we finish this morning? Let's pray together. Holy God, we want to thank you so much that you are alive, that you gave your son Jesus to die for us, that we can have fullness of life, relationship in you, Lord. God, I want to thank you for those two great promises from that scripture this morning, Lord. That, that we can be a people that are courageously obedient to your will. God, help us to be that person. And Lord, help us to never forget that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no one falls short of being used in a powerful way by you. Lord God, I pray that we would take those promises with us into our weeks. But God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to hear your voice as we read your word. Lord God, I pray that you would guide us to to finding that message of hope and truth as we wrestle with scripture. Lord God, I pray for each person and everyone that's committed to to this time of reading, Lord, that that I pray there'd be a fresh passion for it, for anyone who's kind of, yeah, that was fun for a week and now I'm kind of over that, to say, God, bring them back because you want to speak truth, life, hope and joy into their situation. Lord God, give us new ears, new eyes to hear your word. And God, I pray that your holy, miraculous, God-inspired word would speak to us in power 
every time we pick it up. Praise you, God, and amen.